Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Today's reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. That's chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in well, his name. I wonder what happens to your belief when it meets with unbelief. A few years ago, I was having a coffee with a friend and she was kindly asking me uh, what kind of things I've been up to at church recently. And as I talked about it, um, you could see this look of what planet are you from coming across her face. And after a while, she stopped me and said, how can you base your whole life on an ancient book? I love candid questions from friends who don't follow Jesus. Uh, They help me remember how weird I look to somebody who doesn't take the Christian faith seriously. But as my friend asked me, how can you base your life on this book? Do you know, I could feel doubt creeping in. How can I? Am I naive? For my friend, uh, seeing is believing. If Jesus had shown up to our coffee, then maybe we could talk about believing in him. But to believe just because an ancient fisherman like John wrote about him 2,000 years ago, well, that's crazy, isn't it? Naive, gullible. For others, though, it's not so much seeing is believing as much as feeling is believing. Spiritual matters, uh, the things of God and eternal life or the afterlife, they aren't in the realm of facts and evidence. Uh, 
Because what you feel is what you believe. And to insist that a person must believe in Jesus to have eternal life, well, that's just arrogant, isn't it? As though your beliefs were more important than my feelings? What gives you the right to say that? And again, when we, when we encounter people who think that way, we can start to doubt ourselves. Am I arrogant? So which is it? Seeing is believing? Or feeling is believing? Well, John has a third option for us. He cuts through the confusion. He says, reading is believing. Verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you, you, whoever you are, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Notice John hasn't given us all the evidence that he could have. Jesus did many signs not recorded in this book, but what he has given us is sufficient for belief. These things are written that you may believe, and by believing have life. This is why he's been writing his record of Jesus' life all along, to persuade us to believe on the basis of sufficient evidence, eyewitness evidence, written testimony. He saw and believed, and then he wrote what he saw that we might read and believe. You see, seeing is believing. It's not totally wrong. It's just that we don't see with our eyes. Rather, we see through the eyes of the eyewitnesses. Read, believe, and live. That's what John says to us. Read, believe, and live. That's our big point today. Our passage begins on the same day as last week, uh, Easter Sunday. But verse 19, did you see? It's evening now. And the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. And it's understandable, this fear, isn't it? I mean, we fear embarrassment or social stigma from our association with Jesus. But the disciples feared death with good cause. Jesus, their leader, had just been crucified. And all the disciples, all but John, would go on to be killed for their beliefs. So what made them go public? What made them put in print what they believed, despite the suffering it was going to bring? Well, do you know, as we see what persuaded them from fear to bold belief, or, or in Thomas's case, from skepticism to worship, as we see what persuaded them we begin to see that they are credible witnesses. They believed on the basis of what they saw. And if they're credible witnesses who have seen something remarkable, then isn't it worth listening to them and believing in them? So what did persuade them? Well, middle of verse 19. Jesus came. 
Jesus came and stood amongst them. I've lost a couple of close family members who died tragically young. I'm sure many of you have experienced something similar. And I've dreamt of waking from the nightmare to find them walking back into the room again. And I've done that thing you see in films where you think you've caught a glimpse of them in a crowd from a distance, but when you catch up with them, it's just wishful thinking. Well, can I say that's not how the disciples saw Jesus? Not in their dreams, not at a distance in a crowd. He came into the room. He showed up before their very eyes. Verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He showed them he'd shown up for real by showing them the scars on his hands. Where the nails nailed him to the cross. The wound in his side where the spear had been pushed in to check that he was really dead. Well, Jesus had died. He showed that he'd really died. And then broken through death to life again. End of verse 20. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They saw him. That's why they're credible eyewitnesses. Because of the evidence that they saw. You see, John's not asking us to go with his gut feeling about God. He's not asking us to abandon our brains at the church door. He's claiming to be an eyewitness. For John, seeing was believing. But now he's written an account of what he saw, so that for us, reading might be believing. Do you know, over 20 years of being a Christian now, um, I've met many people who've said to me, uh, knowing that they themselves don't have credible answers in the face of death, who've then said to me, I wish I could have your belief. Maybe that's you. Maybe you wish you could have a, a true Christian belief. But the thing is, I've often found when I've asked them what they think that belief is, that for them really it's about shutting your eyes to reality in order to somehow squeeze belief out of yourself, out of some internal space where reality doesn't really matter is that what John's asking us to do here of course not John says not shut your eyes to reality but open your eyes to my book give it a read read believe and live He wants to persuade us that we can really stake our lives, our eternal lives, on what he saw. You see, John's joy at seeing Jesus, it goes far beyond the joy of a a loved one lost coming back into the room alive again. Far beyond that. As if that weren't joyful enough. But still, Jesus' resurrection actually promises life to us too, if we will believe. Did you notice Jesus' greeting in verse 19? Verse 19, peace be with you. Now that used to be a normal way of saying hello back then, peace be with you. It could be 
Just an empty greeting, I suppose, like the way we say, how are you, when we don't really want to know. It's just something we say. But do you know, when the risen Jesus says these words, peace be with you, they have to mean more, don't they? I mean, Jesus was condemned to death by the Jews and Romans for claiming to be the Messiah. And if you remember, at the point of his death, these men, his closest followers, abandoned him, betrayed him, denied him. Well, a higher judge than uh, the Jewish authorities or Pilate raised Jesus to life, overturning the verdict. This really is the Messiah. Now, what would you expect to happen next? Surely you'd expect Jesus to chase down these good-for-nothing traitors from beyond the grave to, well, have his day of reckoning with them. You'd expect him to come for revenge, a reprimand at least, at least a rebuke. But Jesus comes offering forgiveness. Peace be with you. I wonder, do you find that kind of love credible? The resurrection of Jesus says this kind of love is credible. And that love, it's not just for the disciples here, but for all who believe through them. You see, after the disciples have calmed down enough to listen, Jesus then offers his peace a second time. Did you see how John underlines that? Verse 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. And then he sends his disciples out to offer forgiveness to all who have attempted to suppress and stamp out and push aside God out of their lives. Verse 21 goes on. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Peace with God on the basis of forgiveness for anyone. Now, you might know this uh, passage is John's parallel to the Great Commission in Matthew where Jesus sends his disciples out on mission. But an awkward question mark hangs over it. You see, Roman Catholics want to make much of the apparent authority given to the apostles here to grant or withhold forgiveness, as though forgiveness were in the hands of uh, them as the leaders of the church and anybody who they then ordain, as though they had a kind of priestly role, as though forgiveness weren't something we seek directly from God. But that can't be right. I mean, John has been saying right from the start that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world at the cross. Now, the apostles, they aren't given a priestly authority uh, to pass on. But they are given authority. Uh, there's no other way of reading this verse, is there? The apostles do define who is forgiven and who isn't. But the key question is how? Maybe it's just up to their whim 
I don't like your haircut. You're not getting forgiven. I'd be in trouble, wouldn't I, with my COVID mop, if that were the case. But no. Look at how John fulfills Jesus' mission to grant forgiveness. Verse 30 to 31. What does he do? He writes his eyewitness testimony that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and by believing, have life. You see, John doesn't pass on a priestly authority so that a whole succession of priests can absolve our sins. He passes on eyewitness testimony. The testimony that authoritatively defines once for all the route to forgiveness and life. And what is that route? Belief that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. I wonder though, Is even that kind of authority, is that too much responsibility for human shoulders to bear? I mean, what if the apostles misremembered or misrepresented Jesus' teaching? Well, notice that the disciples don't shoulder this responsibility alone. That's why we see Jesus here breathing on them, giving them a visible sign of the spirit that he will give them who will guide them into all truth, who will remind them of all that they've been taught by Jesus, who will make sure that they don't get it wrong. Look, if all this is true, then can you see that this book is the most important document in human history? Perhaps that explains why it's had the impact that it has. This isn't just some ancient book, as my friend called it, but the most studied, most influential book in human history. Five billion copies printed to date, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Nothing else comes close to that. Not even close. And millions upon millions have believed through its testimony. And they will continue to do so because this is not wishful thinking, but witnesses talking to us about the extraordinary work of God that they saw with their own eyes in their day. This um, past week, one of our trainees, Toby, sent me a quote from Richard Dawkins, uh, from his book, The Selfish Gene. Have you read The Selfish Gene? An extraordinary popular book, though not even coming close to the popularity of the Bible, of course. But Dawkins writes this. Faith means blind trust. In the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence... You'd think, wouldn't you, that Dawkins can't have read John's gospel, especially not chapter 20 here, where John asks us to believe on the basis of eyewitness evidence. But do you know Dawkins has? He has read chapter 20 because the quote goes on. He says, The story of doubting Thomas is told, not so that we shall admire Thomas, but so that we can admire the other apostles in comparison. Thomas demanded evidence. The other apostles whose faith was so strong that they did not need evidence are held up to us as worthy of imitation. Is that what's going on here? Are John and Jesus commending to us belief 
in the teeth of the evidence? Of course not. Look, even Thomas was given evidence. Actually, to begin with, he's given the same evidence that is given to us. The evidence of the eyewitnesses. Did you see verse 25? So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Eyewitness evidence given to Thomas. Thomas's response, you see, it's not so much a demand for evidence as much as it is a rejection of the evidence on offer. Thomas rejects it out of hand because he wants to set the terms for what evidence is admissible. Verse 25 goes on. Uh, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Do you know, Thomas's skepticism is actually a little embarrassing, isn't it? His 10 closest friends have undergone an extraordinary transformation from fear to uncontainable joy, and yet he refuses to trust what they tell him. And on what grounds? Well, it's not clear, is it? There are no grounds. It just all looks a little stubborn at the end of the day. And I guess that's Jesus' point in verse 29. Then Jesus told him, verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Notice even more evidence given to Thomas, the evidence that he wanted. Sorry, Dawkins. Uh, You've got to think, haven't you? Dawkins must have been either misremembering himself or just willfully misrepresenting what is written here. Anyway, Jesus says, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And notice in the context, Jesus isn't saying that we are blessed for believing in the teeth of the evidence, but that we are blessed for believing the way that Thomas should have believed, through the evidence of the eyewitnesses, through the evidence of the apostles. We're blessed for believing the way that John commends belief to us. Read what I've written that you may believe. It's deeply ironic, Thomas's unbelief. Deeply ironic. Because Thomas was an apostle himself. He was going to go on to spend the rest of his life trying to persuade others to believe on the basis of his eyewitness testimony. But he himself refused to believe the eyewitness testimony when it was offered to him. Well, I guess he must have had real sympathy for the skeptics who went on to refuse to believe his evidence in later life. I know where you're coming from, he would have said with a wry smile. But don't make my mistake. Please, at least consider my evidence. Don't just dismiss it out of hand. Your very life hangs on it. But ultimately, we've got to be grateful to Thomas for his skepticism, haven't we? Because once again, it serves to persuade us. Look, if somebody so skeptical was persuaded, doesn't that suggest that they really met with the risen Lord Jesus. Just as the disciples' transformation from fear in verse 19 to bold belief, as John publicly states his position in verses 30 to 31, 
So also Thomas's transformation from skepticism to worship, they persuade us that something of seismic importance must have happened in that room. And the simplest explanation, the most credible explanation of all, is that they met with the risen Lord Jesus. But actually, even more than that, Thomas tells us that any of us are capable of doubt. Let's not be surprised by our own doubts. But let's not settle for them either. Jesus wants more for us than cowering in fear for fear that our faith might prove futile. He sent the apostles to give us evidence that is sufficient for belief. So let's dig into the evidence and interrogate it and let the evidence interrogate our doubts. I had a friend in London who'd been a Christian for many years. He'd led small groups. He'd even led the old Christianity Explored course. And, you know, he bravely said to me, I'm really struggling with doubts at the moment. I think I need to do a Christianity Explored course for myself. Can I say, even if you've been a Christian many years, there is no shame in doing that. Look, if even Thomas one of the apostles, can suffer doubt in the face of the eyewitness evidence, then why should you be surprised if I or you can suffer those same doubts? Don't let shame put you off being open about your doubts and asking your questions, whoever you are. Too much is at stake to just bury your head in the sand and not attempt to deal with your doubts. And more than that, there is evidence sufficient to move you from doubt to belief if you will dig into it. Thomas's doubt was ultimately baseless, but Jesus is very gentle with him here. And of course, any Christian worth their salt, any Christian who's honest with themselves about their own doubts, will be gentle with you too if you need to go back to basics and the basis for belief. Breed, believe, and live.